All right, good morning. Today for our scripture reading and our text from God's Holy Word, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 11. We'll also be looking at the book of 1 Peter today. And I've decided that as opportunity arises, I'll be exhorting from the book of 1 Peter, a book that's often been nicknamed the Epistle of Hope. And I trust and pray that God will illuminate your minds so you might be drawn in to see what Christ has accomplished for you as you rest in Him, in Him alone, and receive hope and assurance to the end that you might be ready to suffer and obey for His sake as you await His appearing. Again, we're reading from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, and we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapters 1 Uh, Verses 1 and 2, and then chapter 5, we'll look at a few verses. Let's hear from God's Word, Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, "'Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly.' And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top shall reach to heaven. And let us make ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to the city and tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people now, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Keep your marker in Genesis 11. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And our last text for today is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word today, we pray that you would illumine our minds, that we might see Christ and his accomplishments, and that we would see his accomplishments for us as we come to him in faith. So by your Spirit, we pray that you would accompany the preaching of the Word, that you would receive much glory, and that we would get a glimpse of our Savior's work and what He's doing in the church. 
make our hands useful in that service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we open today, I'll address some of the background of 1 Peter. We'll look at two themes that have their roots in the garden, and mindful as I'm opening, I realize that uh, the sermon title I gave you was Babel Unbabbled. I've been fretting all week whether I should have doubled the L on babbled. <laughs> Spelling would dictate I probably should, but be that as it may, Babel Unbabbled, awaiting the glory to be revealed. And certainly we'll cover that theme. But as I was studying through the week, I was really struck by a couple major themes. And those themes are space and motion. That sounds like a, some Jeopardy categories. But uh, these are really important biblical categories. And if we're going to understand First Peter, we need to appreciate some themes of space and motion. If we can appreciate these themes of holy space and motion in the sense of being cast out or scattered, we're going to appreciate Christ and His work that much better. And First Peter will be a lot easier to understand. So we're going to start out with space and motion in the Garden of Eden. When we speak of the Garden of Eden, we usually fail to appreciate what the text screams out to us. The text screams out to us that God's localized presence is there. All theists believe that God is present everywhere. He's omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. But in a very special way, of course, God inhabits the garden. He speaks to Adam and Eve directly. He gives them divine commands. He enters into a covenant with them. And so the thing that we fail to see that's right before us is that God with his people is essentially a temple. The imagery of the garden is that it's a holy temple, a holy space. Professor Meredith Klein states, man's home site was hallowed ground. The Garden of Eden was not only the original land flowing with milk and honey, it was the original holy land. Paradise was a sanctuary, a garden temple. Now, bolstering this argument, of course, is the fact that after Adam's disobedience, he's cast out of the garden. He's cast out east of Eden. He's cast out of the temple. And who is there when he gets cast out from this holy space? Genesis 3.24 has the cherubim there, and they're placed standing guard with flaming swords. And that ought to challenge us when we look at our Hallmark cards and we see these cherubs these cute little chubby renaissance creatures, that is not what we have guarding the garden. Okay? Uh, some have said that the image might be better thought of as the Terminator, fully armed, blocking access to that holy space. None shall pass. Now, in the opening chapters of Genesis, we see a holy space in the primordial temple, and the motion of being cast out or exiled. Because, as Romans says, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I believe that's what Paul has in mind when he deals with that passage in Romans. It's about a past sin in Adam, our father. Not just individually, personally, but corporately, humanly, all have sinned and fallen short. Next, we're looking at our passage, Genesis 11 today. Space and motion as it applies to the Tower of Babel. In our passage in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, we see a mirroring of ideas, sort of a chiasm, and that's published for your viewing pleasure in the bulletin. 
Just a word about chiasm. Some people make a lot of them. It's useful for us to realize as modern people, oftentimes we imagine that pre-modern people, they were a bunch of dumb country bumpkins. But the fact of the matter, literarily, they would blow us away. Okay? And built into the structure of the story of the tower, we're going to see that there's a point. And when you have a chiastic structure, typically what they're doing, and for those of you English wonks that pay attention to patterns and things that I don't really get, um, the, the point is, is that there's a point of emphasis. And the center of a chiastic structure is focusing on the point of the story. And so we're going to hone in on the point of the story today in Genesis chapter 11. But notice really quick, uh, there's a, a lot of parallels, right? Verse 1 talks about the unity of language. 9, the disruption of language. And you can read that for your edification. But there's a pattern here. And when we get to the center of the story, the part of the story that does not have a mirrored image, that mirrored image is God intervenes. Okay? Verse 5, it says, And the Lord came down. God comes down in judgment in reaction to the people's wickedness. Now, what would be the point of all this? The point is that God will respond. There is no sin that will be untaken care of, that will not be taken care of, that will go unanswered. God comes down in judgment in reaction to the people's wickedness. The Lord will respond. God will judge man's wickedness. He will deal with man and his sin. But some of us might wonder, what is so sinful about this? Merely what is going on is a planning committee, some architecture guys, and some builders. What is so bad about that? God did call us to image him in terms of making things, right? Well, I want you to think about this because God comes down to this tower because of the space issue, okay? The space issue is the issue. Though it seems like they're merely trying to build a tower to reach the sky, were they really so naive to think they could? Have they never climbed a mountain? Even in Israel, there are mountains that would have, or even in ancient Mesopotamia more than likely, there are mountains that would far surpass any tower they make. It's a bit naive for us to read this passage this way in terms of... <coughs> just thinking about a tower. The actions of building such a tower here, I submit to you, mean much, much more. It's not merely a tower. It's a tower with its head in the heavens, 11.4. In short, this is a temple. This is a supposed meeting place with the divine. Gordon Wenham notes, the temple of Marduk in Babylon was supposed to have been built by the, An the Anunnaki gods with specially prepared bricks. Its name, House with the Uplifted Head, reflects its claim to have reached the heavens. Now, whether we should identify this Tower of Babel with the Temple of Marduk, I'm not sure. But there is a theme in the ancient Near East of ziggurats or temples being these places where man would meet the divine. So it's a ziggurat, similar to a pyramid. Commonly, ziggurats were designed to be a meeting place for the deity upon the tower. Yet rather than using their God-given abilities of a building to be obedient subjects under the great king, Babel's builders aimed to reconstruct the garden temple, or at least their conception of it, 
for the glory of man. In verses 3 and 4, the people arrogantly make statements that sound all too familiar with let us make and let us build. It appears they're mimicking the well-known declaration when God himself made man. When God built man and woman in Genesis 1, you'll see now that man is making and building as if they are God. Let us, they declare. Their actions of building this tower to reach up into the heavens are more than just a desire to build. They're building a temple according to their own plans and their own desires and their own worship. But most significantly, they're trying to substitute themselves for God. Look at verse 4. Let us make a name for ourselves. Beloved, as creatures that bear the image of God, we are always in relation to our Creator King. We're not making anything for ourselves. They're trying to make and build themselves up as king rather than to submit to the one and only true God and king who calls them to think his thoughts after him. So the architects and construction crews at Babel sought after a close encounter with their deity through their ziggurat. But they didn't quite get what they expected. They were hoping through man's efforts and labors they would build a tower to meet the divine and meet the divine indeed they do. But note what the text says in verse 5. God comes down. It is not as though man has created this wonderful, amazing edifice, this testimony to human achievement that he has reached the heavens, that he has gotten to God, but rather God stoops down in condescension. Man's pomp and glory need to be condescended to. And God condescends to them not for their praise. God visits them in judgment. Have they forgotten the, war, the sword and the cherubim? Have they forgotten the promise of a champion who will come to gain them access to the temple? Yes and yes. They have forgotten God's redemptive story. They've forgotten that access to the heavenly land by human effort has been rendered unattainable after the fall. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For a moment, it's useful to look at the mythological reinterpretation of the facts that uh, the people building the tower entertain. They're arguing that man's plight, rather than being covenant breakers who are called to trust and obey their creating, redeeming, and sustaining Lord, rather they make a satanic assault on heaven, which is camouflaged by a noble quest, by an innocent, victimized mankind aspiring to transcend its existential predicament. So we've seen these themes of space on account of the Babel account. The space is, it is a ziggurat. It is a man-made temple seeking to glorify man. But what about our theme of motion? Once God comes down in motion, uh, in judgment, how does the Lord judge mankind? He scatters them. Or as some of your translations state, the Lord dispersed them. And that's the very thing that they feared in the text. Verses 8 and 9 then go on to describe for us God's judgment, his act of dispersing and scattering the people over the face of the earth. Hence, in the account of the Tower of Babel, as it was in Genesis 3, the motion that we see in the passage is the motion of being cast out. It's the motion of being scattered. It's the motion of being a sub the motion is associated with judgment 
and the curse. Yet why does this even matter? This event serves as the distant background and hidden context from which we can understand God's dealings with Old Testament Israel. Think about Israel's life once they enter into the land and settle there. Despite, at least twice, confessing all that the Lord commands we will do, the fact of the matter was disobedience became their norm. They constantly fell short of God's holy standard. Sin after sin after sin. Generations come and generations go, and nothing changes at all. If you want a downer, go read the book of Judges. The judge's cycle is a downer. But God continues to redeem his people. He continues to send a judge. Despite all this, God is patient. Long-suffering. He puts up with their arrogance and self-righteousness. God endured their intolerable petulance of chasing after idols that were attempting to replace God. Of course, that's really just propping themselves up as king, propping themselves up as God. God warned them over and over again through the prophets as you go through the Old Testament story. The prophets' job is always being the covenant mediator, calling for repentance and return back to the covenant and to return to the mercies of the Lord. Yet they fail again and again. They would not listen. They hardened their hearts so that they, rather than softening their hearts to the the calls of God, rather God's word serves the purpose of hardening them. So what does God do in response? He raises up the Assyrian Empire for the north. The northern kingdom is overcome by the Assyrian Empire, and thereby they are scattered. They're exiled. They're kicked out of the land. They're dispersed because of their sins. In other words, they are uh, judged for their sins. Uh, They're scattered. They're cast out. This judgment results in their being scattered over the whole earth. Now, as often happens in Scripture, and this is true of us, the Old Testament is instructive of us as a whole in terms of the consequences of sin, Um, you would think of the southern kingdom, having seen what happened to the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians, you would think that they would use that as a case study for what not to do. Well, they didn't. They didn't. Sadly, the southern kingdom follows the same playbook. God even uphold the northern kingdom as an example of what to avoid, but they are ignorant to this. No, they don't listen. God therefore raises up for them the Babylonian empire, and the Babylonians come and they wipe out the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's during this time that God's good temple, built according to the copy of heaven, instructed by God for men to build, it's that time that that temple is destroyed. Solomon's temple gets destroyed by the Babylonians. In other words, God will respond to man's wickedness. God will judge God's wickedness. He'll deal with man and his sin. And his judgment results for Judah in being exiled, in being scattered throughout the whole earth. Now, these themes of space and motion in the Old Testament are closely aligned to reveal the human condition. Do not walk out of here thinking, oh, the Old Covenant Jews were just really especially dull. Because, beloved, this is instructive for us. We are especially dull when we hear the the message of repentance and faith, and we continue to sin and say, eh, doesn't really mean it. Well, 
These themes reveal our condition, that we are worthy of God's punishment and judgment. Why is that? Well, the fact of the matter is, if we were to build a temple according to our own plans, it would be a monstrosity glorifying man just like they did at Babel. Even in the presence of the holy, pure temple, if one existed, and it doesn't, and we shouldn't seek for it as a physical temple, even if it did exist, we would be cast out. We would be scattered and dispersed. We would be sent away. So we can't help, as we look through this undoubted downer of a passage, um, is it ever going to change? Do things get better, right? These interesting questions. Well, beloved, as we enter in and think about this, we need to see that God, although we are going to be dispersed, there's a fundamental change in our attitude towards dispersal. Scattering and dispersing, we've seen in the old covenant context, is always associated with the righteous reception of God's judgment, right? When we see these themes of space and motion, right, these holy spaces, when we make them, they aren't so holy. And even if they are holy, we're not so holy, and so we need to be scattered. Let's see how this theme plays out in the New Covenant. Specifically, how does it play out in the New Testament? And uh, we'll get to First Peter a bit today. Well, beloved, the good news is that things change. Things dramatic, d- dramatically change. Our themes of space and motion are turned on their head. In First Peter, the order in which these themes appear, it's not space and motion, it's motion and space. Now, I don't mean to make a huge you know, argument based on the structure of the text here, but it's just an observation. In Peter, he tells us in chapter 1, you're scattered. He tells us in chapter 2, you're a temple. And we're going to look at the scattered people, and we're going to look at these people as they are being built into a holy temple. In 1 Peter, he opens with the main metaphor that he operates with throughout the book. And that is that the new covenant people, Jews and Gentiles united as the one people of God, as they're dispersed through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, these people are a pilgrim people, and they are scattered throughout the earth. Yet notice that as we look at 1 Peter verses 1 and 2, chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, this scattering is not in any way associated with the curse. No, what does Peter say? 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, he says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. He gives the standard apostolic blessing and he says, be multiplied. The free blessing of God rests upon the church. This free blessing of God rests upon you if what Peter describes in his letter is true of you. And why? How does scattering, which used to be always associated with a curse, become associated with being blessed? Well, verse 2 reads that these pilgrim people are elect according to God's God the Father's foreknowledge. They're sanctified by the Spirit, and they have the blood of Jesus sprinkled upon them. We don't have time today to unpack this passage, but I want you to appreciate that this blessed scattering of the church is related to the work of our triune God and not us. 
The scattering is not because of our sins. The scattering is for the mission of the church. Now, of course, the work of our triune God is related to the promise of old in the garden, the day when a champion would arise and crush the serpent's head, though his heel would be wounded. We see this in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, when it says that immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, when it says immediately, the Spirit cast him out into the wilderness. Immediately, Jesus entering his public ministry, the Spirit sends him out. The Spirit disperses. The Spirit, what's the word we're using today? Scatters him into the wilderness. And it's there that Jesus undergoes temptation at the hand of Satan as the second Adam, proving to be the victorious warrior that is promised in Genesis 3. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to undergo the testing of Satan according to the Father's foreknowledge. We're not cursed because he who knew no sin became sin for us on the cross. Jesus takes up Adam's covenant of works for us, and he's victorious. He's not a miserable failure. He triumphs over Satan at the cross. He victoriously conquers death in his resurrection. He earns the right to make a temple to heaven. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is he takes a people with him. He leads in his train his captives. Because of that work of our glorious God, the resurrected Lord Jesus calls us to labor in that scattered mission field. In the Great Commission, the conclusion is, go therefore and disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." This is not built by human hands. Jesus is actually commissioning the church to go, to leave this field, to leave this land, and go into the world. Then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, after rising from the dead, Jesus appears to the disciples before ascending to heaven, and he declares, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Again, Jesus is sending his people out into the world to be scattered and to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What's going on? Do we get any idea that there's judgment involved with this? No, there is no judgment associated with this. Quite the contrary. This scattering theme no longer becomes a sign of our judgment and as a people because of our sin, but the reverse. To be scattered is now a blessing and the highest privilege to participate in God's sovereign unfolding plan to bring blessings to a world full of sinners. Why is the world so full? Because God confused their language at Babel and they had to scatter that which they didn't want to do. We see this again clearly in Acts chapter 2 verses 3 through 12 when the disciples begin speaking in foreign tongues. This scattered frustrated situation of Babel begins to be undone. Men and women, boys and girls, they're able to hear the wonderful works of God spoken in their own language, and that supernaturally. And note, some of the languages, as you look at the Acts 2 passage, some of the languages spoken are the languages of people that live in Pontus, Cappadocia, and Galatia. I'm sorry, Asia misspoke. 
Therefore, three out of the five languages, at least languages in, in groups of people and places that are mentioned in Acts, are also, got that backwards, the first Peter passage, these recipients of Peter's letter, three out of five of them were present on the day of Pentecost, hearing the gospel preached in their language. In the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, being scattered is no longer a curse. It is a blessing as it sends the gospel forth, and we get to participate in that work. But how? We've seen in 1 Peter that the theme of motion is transformed from a cursing to a blessing. What about this theme of space? What about this theme of space? 1 Peter 5.13 mentions, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. And so does my son, Mark. Now, that's an odd phrase, she who is in Babylon. Because when Peter writes this letter sometime in the first century, and we're not going to get into dating or anything like that, we'll get into that next time, Babylon doesn't exist. Babylon was overcome by the Persians, and then the Persians were overcome by the Romans. And the, the situation out of which Peter writes is, the Romans are in control. Why does he mention Babylon? Well, my take is that Peter is looking at this redemptive historically. He's looking at this, and he's saying the church in this world, in its essence, is in Babylon. It's because especially of the destruction of the temple. Remember we said under Judah, the temple was present, Solomon's temple, and then later the temple was rebuilt. Who destroys it? Well, I'm sorry, the first destruction is through Babylon, okay? The first destruction is through Babylon. Didn't give him much thought, but I suppose the second destruction is the Romans. Interesting. And by the way, most scholars believe that when Peter refers to Babylon here, he's actually writing from Rome, and one of his associates, who's a female, is there. And so when he refers to the church in Babylon, it's entirely likely he's referring to Rome. For our purposes today, that's not essential. But interesting point. Babylon doesn't exist, but Babylon is the place of Israel's exile. And so in the height of God's judgment on his Old Testament community, it's a proclamation, people in Babylon, of the exile. It's a proclamation that you are no longer my people. It is low ame time when we talk about Babylon. It's the proclamation of Israel not being their God, of God not being Israel's God and them not being his people. But this woman, this companion in the gospel, greets these dispersed churches, and there is not a hint of disgust. There's not a hint of curse or judgment. She sends her greetings along with Peter. And so the Old Testament curses associated with the destruction of temple are emptied because the person of Christ has taken that for his elect. It's for this reason that Peter calls the church to follow the pattern of Christ. As we get into 1 Peter, the big pattern is suffering now, glory later. And your sufferings, should you suffer them, and all who want to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer. As you suffer, do not be tempted to think, oh Lord, this awful thing is happening to my family. Are you really upset with me? Don't go there. Don't go there. Your sufferings are not a sign that God is angry. Now, it is true you do 
stupid things and there are natural consequences. But the fact of the matter is interpreting God's providence and trying to put your finger on the pulse of what bad thing you did and why you're suffering for it is maddening. And you don't know with certainty whether your bad circumstance or your suffering is related to your union with Christ or your bad decisions. So I'd encourage you, don't, don't imagine, you know, as Christians, we don't like tarot card readers. That came out wrong. We like them, but we don't like the action, right? People who think that they can somehow ascertain the future or read reality. Why do we do it as believers? We do it, don't we? Man, I must be going through this because I sinned. You don't know that with the kind of knowledge that the tarot card readers claim to give you. Knock it off. 1 Peter 2.4 reads, and this is where we're going in terms of place or space. Beloved, know really quick that if you participate in the life of Christ, if you suffer with Him, the Scripture's promise is that you will reign with Him. 1 Peter 2.4 reads, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. The beauty here is that God is making a holy space. He's making a holy space with His church. We know, of course, 1 Corinthians says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And the Jews look at him like he's got a screw loose. And of course, the text says, but of course, the temple he was speaking of was his body. Jesus is claiming that he will resurrect the temple of his flesh. And we see that we don't have time today. But in short, Jesus is the final temple. And here Peter argues that the church, Christ's church, referred to as by the body of Christ by Paul, is being built up into a spiritual house or a temple. And notice that this temple is not built with baked bricks and bitumen. It's not built with hewn stone like the Egyptians. This temple is made with living stones. This temple is made by people who've cried uncle to the Lord Jesus, who said, Lord, I have no righteousness in myself. I need yours. You've provided it. I receive it by faith. Lord, I have no payment for my sins, but that man on a tree 2,000 years ago is sufficient. It is of such people that God is building his final temple. Now notice that this motion being scattered and this space, the temple, are secured by God for you. The church is guaranteed the victory as she goes to the four corners of the earth with the Great Commission. The church is guaranteed her heavenly reality because Jesus Christ himself is her surety. And note, rather than being thwarted from building it, like God tells them at Babel, you are invited to participate. You participate by telling your family, your friends, your neighbors about the grace and peace that the Lord has shown you. You invite them to church. It's okay for you to say, I don't know how to explain the gospel, but he does. Invite him to church. Invite him to church. Now, it's also not a cop-out for you to say, not my job. But God has given us gifts and talents and abilities in your calling, where you at. 
to communicate what you can, how you can. It's that image of the body, right? Not everybody can be a thumb or a big toe or a mouth, or, right? It's the body. Show them what that coming and present final temple is like by what you say and by what you do. So scattered people of God from wherever you are. We realize we're a regional church. We have people from Henderson, Las Vegas, North Las Vegas. We used to have people from other places. I'm sure we do. Visitors. You are a scattered people throughout the week. Keep in mind that you were blessed while you're in exile, while you're away from your heavenly homeland. And as you wait the coming fullness of that temple and that kingdom that is not built with human hands, but built by word and sacrament through Christ's Spirit, fear not when life is difficult. Fear not when sufferings come. Your sufferings are a participation in the life of Christ. And they are a blessing. So, beloved, grace be to you and peace be multiplied. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the apostolic gospel that Christ has come and done what we couldn't do. The Father, that he and his life, death, burial, and resurrection show us your plan for us, that you love your creation, that you're calling us to your final holy temple, and that it's accessible, not by the labors of our hands, but by the building up of Christ through his body on the tree. We pray, Father, that in our ways you would send us out this week useful to call people to that end. Father, we pray that you would bless uh, this offering as we receive it and help us to see that the offering is related to how we participate in the work of the church. We ask that these monies would go to support uh, preachers. We ask that it would support missionaries. We ask that it would support mercy ministries to show your goodness to a sick and dying world in need of that eternal temple. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.